Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Novel. Before we begin, a content warning. The following episode contains difficult themes and violence. Mama. I called my mom back in the middle of lunch recently. What you doing? <laughs> Looking at YouTube videos. <laughs> I'd missed her earlier call, and she tends to worry if I take too long to call her back. So I thought I'd make use of the opportunity to ask her about a connection I have to Eunice Carter's story. Let me ask you this. Do you know anybody who ran numbers? Play numbers, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Let me see, what was his name? He was a big number man in Nashville, girl. He loaned me the money to get the bathroom fixed. My childhood in Nashville and Harlem in the 1920s are quite different in lots of ways. But if the little slips of paper I sometimes saw in my uncle's pockets as a child were anything to go by, Black folks playing the numbers is a shared history across America. My late great-uncle was a hard-working, respectable man. He was quiet, stern, kept his own private stash of Pepsis no one else was allowed to drink. But he had a gold tooth that winked out at the world when he laughed, showing a little bit of the slick country charm that must have stolen my aunt's heart. He believed in the stability of an honest day's work, but he also enjoyed taking a chance on the game of numbers. There was community in the game, If the meteorologist on television said we were going to have four days of 98-degree weather, a living room chorus of elders would erupt, 498, write that down, play that number. The numbers game is like an unofficial lottery. To play, you start by selecting any three-digit number and betting some money on it with a bookmaker. You could play the number and you put a nickel, like, just say, on that 813. The winning digits are announced the next day by whoever runs the game. They're usually drawn from some random, publicly published, hard-to-predict number. 
like the last three digits of Federal Reserve bank clearings for that day. A lot of people had a special system for figuring out which numbers to bet. My great uncle was one of them. He would sit down to work out numbers. Certain times of the year, certain numbers always fall. I remember one time, my uncle deviated from his system by asking my cousin, who was studying to become a preacher at the time, to look in the Bible for some divine help. And she wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She wouldn't do it. Yeah, because the numbers game is a game of chance. My aunt and her husband would host our extended family for almost all the major holidays and family events. My uncle's friends would come over, and after all the greeting formalities were out of the way, they'd ask what it hit for. And the jargon would fly too quickly for my child's mind to follow. I still wasn't really sure what the numbers were. I just knew that a lot of conversations with a certain group of elders included them asking each other if their number had hit today. And if someone showed up with a new car, they'd look at the license plate and say, I'm going to play that number. One time, maybe when I was around six years old, the house was full of people and music and food. All the big elders were sitting at the kitchen table, reminiscing and laughing. There was a gallon jug of what I thought was grapefruit punch sitting there between the ashtrays and discarded dessert plates. I decided to help myself to a cup. But I remember thinking that it was grape creature cooler because it was just in one of them regular old plastic gallon jugs. I thought it was a local brand of fruit punch. My granddaddy stopped me just in time to keep me from drinking some homemade wine. (laughs) Yeah, that's how they would bring it to you. They call it hooch or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know. As fuzzy as this memory is, it's one of my favorites, especially now that 40 years later, so much has changed. Granddaddy's been gone a long time. We can't trust my great aunt, once famous for her hot water cornbread and potato salad, to cook anymore. And my great uncle, her husband, passed away several years ago as well. By the time I was a teenager, my great aunt and uncle had stopped drinking and smoking, but I think my uncle maintained at least that one little vice. As Eunice Hunton Carter walked through the streets of Harlem, perhaps on her way to and from law school, the numbers game would have been going on all around her too. Not necessarily out in the open, Playing the numbers is a secretive business. That's why some of my mom's answers are a bit frustratingly vague. People that were running the numbers, they look like your average person. You could go to the barber shops, the beauty shops, the grocery stores. To who, though? Like, it had to be somebody on the side who wasn't actually going to Kroger and placing a bet with Kroger. The Tennessee has a state lottery. Right, but I'm not talking about the lottery. I'm talking about numbers. Like, that's something different. But listen to me. Numbers were supposed to be illegal. It was a shared open secret between friends. Lucrative, but illegal. Whoever your contact was, they would tell you who you need to see in the grocery store. The janitor that worked there, it could have been the butcher. (laughs) It could have been anybody, Nick. The reason why it was illegal is because it was an underground uh, thing and it was mostly in the black neighborhoods, just like up in Harlem. 
So in Harlem, as the 20s turned to the 30s and Eunice was learning the letter of the law, she passes many of her neighbors who are surviving by breaking it. Not that many play the numbers because they thought it was going to make them rich. The odds of winning are 600 to 1. The more money you put on it, the bigger your return. So they would put a penny on a number, they put a nickel, they put a quarter. People didn't make a whole lot of money, Nick. As ordinary to my childhood as a Cabbage Patch Kid or the sounds of MTV playing in the background, for a long time, it's also been a way to establish hope and agency in Black communities, especially when times got hard. But where does all the money go? Nobody wins, but the people at the people all that money. All that money adds up. Seems like in Eunice's days, just as in my childhood, the people running the game are the ones making the profits. And in Harlem, in the 1920s and into the early 30s, one of those people was called Stephanie St. Clair. As glamorous and as ambitious as Eunice. But just as we saw in Atlanta in 1906, during the violent riots that shaped the trajectory of Eunice's life, Black wealth attracts a lot of white attention. Black folks had that, and white folks wanted they cut. From the teams at iHeartRadio and Novel, I'm Nicole Perkins, and this is The Godmother. Episode 4, Panic. New York City. Wednesday morning, November 20th, 1929. And Eunice Hunton-Carter has just started her break from Fordham Law School. This morning, she's getting ready for a day of political campaigning for Republican mayoral candidate Fiorella LaGuardia. But right now, in this moment, she's taking time for herself to read the newspaper. She opens the New York Amsterdam News. Her eyes are immediately drawn to a large ad. It features a glamorous Black woman looking back at Eunice. She's wearing a coat, jewels, what looks like a cloche hat. Her hands rest just above her hips, Beneath the picture, she's written a letter addressed to the people of New York City. To the members of my race, I have received letters and telephone messages from men who have annoyed me very much, and I take this occasion to ask them publicly to please not annoy me. I, Madame St. Clair, am not looking for a husband or a sweetheart. Eunice recognizes the woman in the ad immediately. So Stephanie Sinclair is very, very flamboyant. One of Harlem's wealthiest and more notorious residents. And maybe the two of them have more in common than at first glance. Their backgrounds are different, but these two women are the same. They want the same things and they see themselves as leaders. 
By this point at the end of the 20s, Stephanie St. Clair is in the paper all the time, in her own ads like this one, and in news articles. By today's standards, she'd be a millionaire. And she is not coy about it. She's one of those people who would definitely be famous in 2023. Stephanie Sinclair knew how to use the press. She knew how to use word of mouth. She knew how to use gossip. Stephanie St. Clair lives at an address that many of the other movers and shakers of Harlem's Renaissance also call home. Up on Sugar Hill, 409 Edgecombe Avenue. The grand 13-story complex my Harlem tour guide had told me about during my visit to the neighborhood. It sits on a raised section of Harlem, with sweeping views to the east. It's home to the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois, Aaron Douglas, and of course, later in her life, Eunice. But in the winter of 1929, another resident is walking across the parquet floors and through its lush lobby, tipping her hat to the doorman. When Stephanie Sinclair lived in that building during the 20s and the early 1930s, everyone who lived in that building knew who she was and they knew what she did for a living. Stephanie St. Clair is an illegal gambling racketeer and a successful one at that. She's known as Harlem's policy queen. That means she runs the neighborhood numbers game being played all over Harlem. St. Clair employs at least 50 runners who spill out across Harlem, collecting slips and bets in salons, grocers, and living rooms. She is arrogant, fashionable, glamorous, and smart. She has a reputation for profanity. All of this led an air to mystery to her that was a part of her mystique. She's cagey about the details of her past, but we know she arrived in New York City from the Caribbean just prior to the Great Migration. And she's said to have led a local gang called the 40 Thieves in her youth until she found her niche in the numbers game. Here you have a woman who's able to really build a small empire in a short amount of time. Soon, Eunice Hunton Carter and Stephanie St. Clair will share a common enemy. But it's Stephanie who will learn his name first. So Dutch Schultz is this bootlegger. He's a ruthless gangster. Dutch was a major figure in organized crime from the 1920s. His family had owned a trucking company, which came in handy for the transportation of illegal alcohol. But in 1933, with Prohibition coming to an end, his prospects look less profitable. So just like his associate Lucky Luciano, he's searching for new opportunities to exploit. Unlike Lucky, he doesn't have the same kind of charisma about him. Or forethought, for that matter. Every time he has a run-in with someone, he sort of doubles down. Like, I gotta kill more people, I gotta be more aggressive next time. He sort of consistently learns the wrong lessons. So as Lucky's Mott Street Boys are moving into sex work, Dutch Schultz's idea for a new revenue stream is the neighborhood numbers games particularly one neighborhood where it appears to be flourishing. This is someone who wants to really control Harlem's numbers racket. He had been pretty successful in forcing Black numbers bankers out of their businesses by force, by violence. 
But just like Eunice, Harlem's policy queen is no pushover. Stephanie Sinclair is not going to let someone like a Dutch Schultz come in and take the business. So in the early 30s, just as Eunice is holding her ground, trying to find a path forward in the male-dominated world of law and preventing her career from stagnating, Stephanie St. Clair is holding her ground, too. She's engaged in a game of cat and mouse with Dutch Schultz. Rumor has it she's taken to walking across Harlem's rooftops to avoid being spotted by Dutch or his cronies on the street. Because Stephanie is still working her numbers business, even as Dutch is trying to box her out. But the mafia has no issues with strong-arming women. With the walls of prohibition coming down, mobsters across New York are on the move. It's not just the occasional bandit who would stick up a liquor store. It was very well organized and very violent uh, coming out of uh, prohibition. And the press are jumping on this emerging story. Suddenly, these mobsters are no longer the friendly facilitators of your boozy party, are putting the wine on your table with dinner. They're coming for you. They want a thumb in every pie, and they don't care if that pie is baked with your blood. It's a story that's salacious. It's got drama. It's perfect for crime reporters to fill their columns. All of a sudden, we began to see um, more panic. And readers are told, This crime wave isn't just in the underworld. It's seeping into everyday life. The rise of the criminal underworld. Every mobster is a direct threat to the American way of life. Imagine opening up your morning paper and reading that while you do your God-given duty as an American husband and father, going to work each day to put food on the table, Some flashy gangster wants to rob your store or kidnap your daughter or make you give up your hard-earned salary for protection. Nowhere is safe. Everything has value to the mob. This market economy gone crazy. Everything's for sale. The leading hoodlums of the day as well as Luciano, talked about everything being for sale. This is the ultimate market. So cops are for sale, prosecutors are for sale, judges are for sale, sex is for sale, women are for sale, everything's for sale. And whether it's the cop on a beat and you give him five bucks to look the other way, or whether it's somebody higher up in the system or wherever, they were ineffective. Those who have been quietly operating on just the other side of the law until recently, whether it's numbers like Stephanie St. Clair or in sex work like Cokie Flo, are now labeled as complicit with the ones trying to take over their businesses. Suddenly, they're the culprits in a much bigger scandal. New York was practically a failed city. The ability of the state and the police to maintain law and order in a democratic way was largely failing, and that there were all these people, all these gangsters of all kinds who operated as virtually independent warlords were practically taking over the city. Are things really as bad as they seem? Is the very fabric of society falling apart? By the time LaGuardia is elected as mayor on January 1st, 1934, it doesn't seem to matter. 
Every politician in New York promised to do something about this. Certainly, uh, Fiorello LaGuardia promised that he would be the one who would find some way to deal with completely out of control crime. There was a push by all sorts of people to do something. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The story of how New York came to appoint its mob crusader is a little convoluted, for the detail-oriented. It's a story Eunice might enjoy herself. But for others, it was essentially, on the one hand, a problem. The problem in New York was how do you take this random 
mayhem of violence and bring it under the law. How do you do that? That's very difficult. And on the other, a seemingly unlikely solution. Let's have a democratic process that is competent, that is transparent, but is also strong enough to repress all of this terrible violence. That was the the great challenge that LaGuardia faced in the 30s. The stars needed to somehow align for someone to be given actual power to go after the mob. But who? Who in the corrupt world of 1930s politics would be given that kind of authority? And who would even want to take on such a dangerous task? Well, the answer came from something called a runaway grand jury. They're basically a group of citizens chosen to investigate specific allegations of corruption and vice. But the New York DA who appointed them had underestimated how impatient they were for change. They've had enough of the state of politics and corruption in New York. And there was a big stink. And so the grand jury ran away, all the way to the governor of New York up in Albany. Grand juries can do lots of stuff. And once they're impaneled, they not only can call in witnesses and so on, but they can complain about attorneys. The runaway grand jury demands the governor appoint someone strong enough to rid the city of mobsters once and for all. All right, all right, all right. I'll appoint a special prosecutor to basically replace the sitting district attorney. But this still raises the question of who would want to do this. It's not like there's a long list of bipartisan people with the necessary experience who are going to raise their hands. To make matters worse, all of the governor's initial candidates for the job are rejected by the grand jury members. They want someone energetic. Efficient. Confident. Hardworking. Not camera shy. Focused and ambitious. Someone with an extremely striking mustache. Thomas Dewey enters the picture on that platform. Just a few years after Addie and William Hunton welcomed their sugar into the world and named her Eunice, Thomas Dewey was born to a middle-class family in Owasso, Michigan. Like Eunice, his education was marked by academic excellence. Also like Eunice, Dewey's parents were committed Republicans. His dad was a newspaper man who owned and published a Michigan paper. It was an abolitionist newspaper, a pro-Lincoln newspaper. And Dewey himself was very attentive to the media of the day. As a child, he grew up with this realization that the printed paper, that was important. Ever since his early days, Dewey had been something of a ham. He loves putting on a good show, despite what some consider an unremarkable appearance. Always well-groomed, he's average height, with slick-backed hair parted carefully on the left side. You could practically count the teeth marks from his comb, but that facial hair. He insisted on having his little mustache that irritated people. I can remember my dad, who grew up in New York State, saying he'd never vote for that Dewey guy because of that bad gum mustache. And I would think, Dad, what's the mustache got to do with it? And Dewey's demeanor? Aloof, cocky, conceited, condescending. He rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But he was also ambitious. Dewey has one powerful tool for success. As a very young man growing up in Michigan, he was blessed with this remarkable voice, this great baritone voice. He thought he was going to be a singer, and he always had a kind of theatrical side to him. In college, he'd actually traveled down to North Carolina for a singing competition. 
and young Tom Dewey sang his way around in the mountains. Singing was how Dewey met his future wife. Of course, in the end, he doesn't pursue a singing career, but he'd continue to use that voice. You witnessed the tragic effect of crime on its victims, the unbelievable viciousness of the underworld. This is from a radio show Dewey had on WNYC, somehow hypnotic yet energizing at the same time. The hardships under which the police and other law enforcement agencies labor and the schemes and tricks to which criminals resort to get around the law. As Eunice was starting her writing and social career during the 1920s Harlem Renaissance, Dewey had moved to New York and launched his legal career, initially in private practice as a lawyer on Wall Street. But that was just the start. Thomas E. Dewey decided at one point to have political aspirations along with his law enforcement aspirations. For Dewey, the law is just a rung on a ladder. The problem is that as a politician, he lived in an age of basically very charming and lovable politicians. Franklin Roosevelt had enough charm for about 12 different people. Fiorella LaGuardia, also a very charming kind of character. So Dewey had great strengths, but on the charm scale, he was a little challenged. But as the son of a newspaper man, Dewey knows some things the other wannabe politicians don't. He was friendly with the press because he understood that to get attention to him, which he craved, it was important to be involved with the media. And that irritating little mustache doesn't have quite the same impact over the airwaves. 6 p.m. Naval Observatory time, New York City's own station, WNYC. As far as cutting-edge mass media technology goes, in the 1930s, audio is it. Ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. And Dewey is learning how to use it for his own purposes. Station WNYC occupies a prominent place among the radio stations of our country in the presentation and discussion of the many complex and multiple problems which confront our people. Radio is his specialty. But as his career progresses, he keeps all the media close, making sure he's making the right kind of news. I don't think he ever felt that he couldn't manipulate the press. He knew exactly how to deal with reporters and with journalists. Did he get that from his family, from his father? Maybe he did. He knew how to manipulate people. He knew how to talk to people. By the time Eunice was finishing law school, Dewey had left Wall Street behind for new opportunities. And around the time she's failing her first law exams in 1931, he's being appointed as a prosecutor and chief assistant U.S. attorney. As Dewey looks around him at the career trajectory of other lawyers in his new role, it seems obvious. The higher the profile of the defendant in the dock, the more press attention the prosecutor gets, and the faster they move up the career ladder. So in 1933, just as Eunice was about to set up her own law practice down the street from the Tree of Hope, Dewey gets his shot. In the crosshairs was a notorious former bootlegger. Waxy Gordon was one of his first targets. And Dewey is soon making headlines for convicting this wanted gangster on tax evasion. And that's how he first got involved with prosecuting organized crime. Next, Dewey turns his eye toward another gangster with another great name, a colleague of Lucky Luciano's. And that was Irish-American gangster Jack Legs Diamond. 
Dewey helps put Legs Diamond away too. And so when 1935 comes around and the governor of New York is looking to appoint his mob-busting special prosecutor, there was the man with the mustache. Thomas E. Dewey came up like the Boy Scout prosecutor. Someone not yet tainted by corruption, bipartisan, white, male. Dewey had a reputation among both Republicans and Democrats. Honestly, the governor doesn't have many other options. Thomas Dewey was an idealist. Thomas Dewey was a crusader who grabbed on to the general public's disenchantment with gangsterism as a whole. It has to be Dewey. He totally fit the bill for a guy to take down the mob. Dewey is officially appointed to the role in the spring of 1935. He's 33 years old, with about a decade of law experience. Dewey knows he needs to strike strategically. A high-profile blow was the answer, like waxy and legs. But this time, he needs someone even bigger, someone with an even more violent reputation. One of these gangsters had gotten rich during Prohibition and is now spreading out his operations across New York. A huge, high-profile target. He chooses Dutch Schultz. Dutch is going to be Dewey's ticket to the top. And Dewey knows he's not going to be able to take him out on his own. As Dutch chases Stephanie St. Clair across Harlem's rooftops, Dewey knows he needs someone on the ground, uptown. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. 
you write the books, Jean, and Vlastor owns the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's important to remember, respectability is a type of performance. Lucky Luciano dresses himself in fancy clothes and jewelry to hide his rough beginnings and fit in places he may not have been allowed otherwise. And from the summer of 1935, Dewey has his mob crusade to rebuild the public's trust in the law. Even though Eunice came from a middle-class, well-educated Black family, it's easy to assume she still has to be careful about showcasing her intelligence in predominantly white spaces to avoid ruffling any feathers, both in her legal career and as she starts participating in politics, working for the LaGuardia campaign in 1929. When Eunice first started political campaigning during that temporary break from law school, the Republican Party was losing Black voters. And by 1932, as she's graduating from Fordham and setting up her own practice, the Republican Party is running Black candidates in urban districts. In Harlem, an otherwise popular incumbent had his campaign severely weakened by corruption allegations. The Republican Party hoped to find the right candidate to replace him in the state assembly. Ideally, they wanted a Black person who was smart, ambitious, outspoken. Someone from a good family who knew Harlem well. Eunice Hunton Carter. The summer of 1934 is the hottest on record. And as Eunice begins campaigning for the 19th District Assembly seat, I picture her standing in the heat of a curious but skeptical Harlem crowd as she makes this speech. For myself, I make no plea. I live here. I have lived here. I am going to continue to live here. I am one of you, and I want things for Harlem. I have an eight-year-old son whom I hope will live and who I expect to work here. You have known me for the better part of half of my life that I have lived right here with you. I need say no more as to my interest in this community. 
than the fact that I will put the community first. Despite her socialite status, Eunice could not have failed to see the way many in Harlem had suffered during the Great Depression. So if you were already poor during the Harlem Renaissance, then you were extremely poor during the 1930s. Now people who were already subjected to low-wage household work have to compete with white people who in normal times would not take those low-paying jobs. Eunice's commitment to the community wins her the endorsement of the Amsterdam News and the New York Age. She opens a campaign headquarters just a few blocks north of her law practice on the Boulevard of Dreams, even closer to the Tree of Hope this time. So she might have seen with her own eyes the day workmen arrived to cut it down. It's a Monday in late August, that hottest of summers drawing to a close. 7th Avenue is set to be widened, and so the tree has got to go. A crowd of onlookers gather to watch, taking chips of bark with them as souvenirs for a piece of luck. Just a couple of months after the Tree of Hope comes down, so too do Eunice's dreams of political office. She lost by an extremely narrow margin. She almost beat somebody very popular, an incumbent. Eunice doesn't win the assembly seat, but she does win herself some powerful political allies. Fiorello LaGuardia, who's now won his second run at mayor, is among them. And soon, she'll have the opportunity to put her commitment to community to the test. Shortly after that election, there was this terrible race riot in Harlem. March 19, 1935, is the day the Harlem race riot began. It starts when a teenage boy gets arrested at a local store. After being accused of shoplifting in a store, a white store in Harlem. The police beat him up a little bit, but there's this rumor that spreads in Harlem that he's killed. He's not killed. He was whisked away by the police. This kid, Lino Rivera, is assumed to have been beaten to death. An agitated crowd descends on the store. A nearby ambulance speeding away from the scene heightens their confusion. Suddenly, frustrations reach the surface. Black people were angry, not only because of the arrest of that young black man. This is during the Depression when everybody was suffering, but African Americans suffered even more. All of Black Harlem was not wealthy or elite. Lack of jobs, lack of adequate housing, just in terms of getting a meal, getting something to eat. Being surveilled by police, subject to verbal violence by the police, physical violence by the police, intense policing of Black bodies, and also Black spaces too. Any type of public space becomes criminalized because there's this perception about Black people and who they are. Within hours, hundreds have gathered in protest. Then someone throws a rock through the store window. That was the spark that really ignited. Rioting begins throughout the neighborhood. Even though the teenager, originally accused of theft, had already been arrested and released, misinformation 
confusion, and long-held grievances take over. The revolt against the conditions in which the majority of Black people were living during that time When the rioting subsides, three people have died. There is an estimated $2 million in property damage across the community. The mayor, Fiorella LaGuardia, immediately said, we have to do something within days. He appointed a commission to look into what are the causes of this riot and how do we stop this from happening again. Mayor LaGuardia staffs up his commission with more Black members than white. And he knew Eunice just because she had run for office. She was the only woman on the commission. And as secretary, she kept the books. She was kind of in, you know, in charge of what was going on and keeping the minutes. So this group met and they came up with some really great suggestions. And their report pointed out the reasons for the revolt and what needed to be done to ensure that African-Americans' concerns were addressed. They did a great job, and this was partially because of Eunice. If you look at that final version of that report, it was, for the time, radical in its own right because it clearly pinpointed the issues that Black people were dealing with and noted that there were specific kinds of changes that needed to occur to address the concerns of the Black community. The significance of this movement is probably not in what the commission would go on to achieve. Many of their final report recommendations are seen as too progressive. And it will not surprise you to learn that police brutality, inequality, and economic disparity all continue in Harlem, despite the work Eunice and her peers put into the commission. The commission may have been window dressing, but it also marks another key moment in Eunice's ambition. Eunice had been chosen by white men in significant power. Her name is clearly out there now for positions of influence. She's a name the establishment feels they can trust to call on. Maybe not across all of New York, but definitely in Harlem. While Eunice is working on this committee, she's also spending some of her time volunteering as a kind of law clerk in a women's court. Sounds outrageously sexist today, but there actually was a women's court. In New York City, the women's court uh, is in a building that still stands called the Jefferson Market Courthouse. Uh, It is a beautiful old Gothic brick building with a big bell tower now, actually not far from where the Mott Street gang uh, began and had their headquarters. A court that was devoted entirely to females uh, committing crimes like shoplifting or uh, prostitution or whatever kinds of vagrancy, whatever sorts of things that women uh, could be accused of, uh, came out of that same period that prohibition comes out of, that it seems unladylike to have strangers sitting in court staring at these women as they talk about these vice-ridden lifestyles and all these crimes. In the summer of 1935, Eunice's volunteering pays off. The New York DA appoints Eunice as an assistant prosecutor in the court. So when Eunice was hired at the prosecutor's office in 35, she was the first Black woman in the New York prosecutor's office. 
I'm fascinated by Eunice's decision to become a prosecutor and not a public defender. For someone looking to uplift the Black community, it seems an unusual choice. I wonder if she saw it as a challenge as one of the few women and African-Americans going into being a prosecutor. Anyone who is a prosecutor, they're all pretty feisty and self-confident. And I really admire that. At the same time, I think there are African-Americans who go into becoming prosecutors because it is a traditional route to power. A route to power. Maybe that's it. It's certainly not the glamour of the women's court. It was dingy and dirty. There weren't even electric lights for much of the early 20th century. It was jammed with lawyers and dirty cops and judges. It was no place that anybody wanted to be. Uh, But many women were there dozens and dozens of times. The drama of the court has to get Eunice's blood pumping more than the wills and contracts she was leaving behind in her private practice. Plus, Eunice excels in research, like going through court documents, so there's plenty of work. Booking forms, evidence sheets, courtroom transcripts. Detail heaven for someone like Eunice. She looks through every piece of paper she can. I can picture Eunice at a table in a courtroom with poor lighting in a room that smells like smoke. Everyone smoked in public back then. I wonder if she has a little ashtray by her side as she pours over the documents. She probably likes noticing the way information gets distilled from the frantic energy of the courtroom into the stenographer's notes. And as she sits there, she starts noticing patterns. Who signs their names with X's? How often the same women get picked up? Or how so many of them have the same lawyer? It's the same lawyer for all the women being released without a conviction. Does she talk about this pattern with her colleagues? Someone as detail-focused as she is probably begins taking her own notes, just in case they'll be useful later. Eunice doesn't strike me as a woman who would notice these things and shrug them off. She files that knowledge away. Eunice keeps her nose to the grindstone, but soon, someone from City Hall calls, looking for her. Because while Eunice has been learning the ropes at the women's court, Thomas Dewey has been appointed New York's special prosecutor. And now, he's assembling a team. Thomas Dewey said, I am looking for the 20 best attorneys in New York. He receives a huge number of applications from lawyers who all believe they're worthy. Because everybody wanted this glamorous, kind of sexy case. But Dewey doesn't just want the best. He's looking for people with very specific skills. I don't care their race, I don't care their religion, I don't care their gender, I want the best people. He also named Jewish attorneys. At the time, there was such a strong streak of anti-Semitism. Who first suggested the name Eunice Hunton Carter? One of Dewey's assistants described her as, oh, she's a real go-getter. Dewey said, let me interview her. She looks like she might be a candidate for this. Now, what made it even harder for Eunice was You can imagine all these people are white. They're all men. You know, how on earth would a black woman be on this team? It was the mid-30s. 
This doesn't seem to put Dewey off. He knows he needs to assemble a strong team, but he also has to assemble a kind of diverse and also kind of unknown team. And that's because he has to assemble people who, if they're going out into the community, if they're questioning witnesses, if they're questioning anyone, they don't necessarily want immediately for someone like Dutch Schultz to be like, I know that cop, I know that prosecutor, I've seen that attorney before. They want people who are knowledgeable, but still a little bit outside of this world. Like Eunice Carter. She knows Harlem. Dewey talked to her and he said, yes, I want her on my team. On July 1st, 1935, Special Prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey appoints Eunice Hunton Carter as a Deputy Assistant Prosecutor in the largest investigation of organized crime in U.S. history. Eunice Carter is just 36 years old, the only woman and the only person of color on Dewey's team, the only Black woman. Her hiring instantly makes national news. But that's nothing compared to the headlines she's about to generate. That's coming up in Episode 5 of The Godmother. In this episode of The Godmother, you heard... I'm Debbie Applegate. I'm a historian and biographer, and I am the author of Madam, the biography of Polly Adler, icon of the Jazz Age. My name is Christian Cipollini, and I am an organized crime historian and author. I'm Marilyn Greenwald. I'm a professor emerita of journalism at Ohio University, and I'm the author of five biographies, including one of Eunice Hunton Carter. My name is LaShawn Harris. I am an associate professor of history at Michigan State University in the Department of History. My name is Dr. Clarissa Myrick Harris, and I am a tenured professor of Africana Studies at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, my name is Ellen Paulson. I research and I write books about criminal acts and endeavors that took place during the 1930s in the United States. And my focus so far has been women who were involved with notorious gangsters and desperados. My name is Robert Whalen, and I'm an emeritus professor of history at Queens University of Charlotte here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I am Claire White, and I am the Director of Education at the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. I'm Catherine Powell, the Eunice Hunton Carter Research Professor of Law at Fordham Law School. My name is Chuck Greaves. Before becoming a writer, I spent 25 years as a Los Angeles trial lawyer. My fourth novel was basically a fictionalization of the famous 1936 Vice Trial. The Godmother is produced by Novel for iHeartRadio. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. The Godmother is hosted and written by me, Nicole Perkins. Our producer is Leona Hamid. Additional production from Adjua Jima Brimpong, 
Ronald Young Jr., and Zayana Youssef. Our editor is Ajua Jima Brimpong. Additional story editing from Max O'Brien and Maithili Rao. And our researcher is Zayana Youssef. Additional research from Mohammed Ahmed. David Waters is our executive producer. Field production by Tanita Romani and Palace Shaw. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Daniel Kempson. Our score was written, performed, and recorded by Jeff Parker. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Production management and endless patience from Cherie Houston, Sarah Tobin, and Charlotte Wolf. Fact-checking by Fendel Fulton and Danya Suleiman. Story development by Madeline Parr, Jess Swinburne, and Zayana Youssef. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Special thanks to Leah Carter, Stephen Carter, Angela J. Davis, Andrew Fernley, Marilyn Greenwald, Sandra Lebedee, Catherine Godfrey, Nadia Mady, Amalia Sortland, Sean Glenn, Neil Krishnan, Julia Bromberg, Katrina Norvell, Carly Frankel, and all the team at WME. Novel. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.